Well, talk about being between a rock and a hard place. See, this is a good demonstration of that, huh? <laughs> and maybe when that happens, maybe you feel, boy, that you're kind of like on the edge of things, right? If problems keep piling up or, or pushing you, it's, it's like if there's one more thing, I'm over the edge. Or maybe you look at it as if it were a, a pile of rocks. And that is, you, you go there and, and everything just keeps piling up, all these troubles. And it's like one little thing more and it's going to all tip over and collapse. If your life feels that way, are you looking for some stability, some certainty? Well, you're not alone if you feel that way. I'm sure that everybody here has felt that way before. But even more so, some of the great people of the Bible have lived in those situations where it seemed like life was just on the edge. One of those great people was Jacob in the Old Testament. And it's interesting to note that throughout Scripture he's referred to. And his name was changed from Jacob to Israel, the name that was then given to God's people. And I don't just mean that political nation, I mean all believers in God are Israel. And so when we take a look at Jacob's life this morning, we're going to see some similarities with our own life. And that fits into our messages for this year of real people in the Bible and their real lives. We can identify with them and how we see we all have a very real God. So today let's talk about life on the edge versus living with stability. Now, before we get to studying that portion of Scripture, I want to give you a little background as to who Jacob is, in case you're unfamiliar with him. Jacob is the grandson of Abraham, so lived thousands of years ago. He was actually a twin. His brother Esau was born first, and then Jacob was born. Now, their custom was that the firstborn in the family would receive the birthright. It was a special blessing that was given to the oldest son that meant that he would become the head of the family when the father passed away, and he would receive a double portion of the inheritance. Oftentimes connected with the birthright was that special blessing of the Savior coming through his descendants. So that was to go to Esau being the first. But before they were born, God said that that birthright would be given to Jacob, the second son, instead. Now, as things were progressing through life, Isaac, Jacob's father, was at the point of death, and now it was time to pass on the blessing. But Jacob was concerned, and so was his mother, that plans had not been made to give that blessing to Jacob, that it was going to go to Esau instead. So Jacob and his mother conspire together to get things changed. The first thing Jacob does is bargain with his brother Esau to get him to sell him the birthright. And he simply gave him a, a meal in place of it. The scriptures say Esau despised the birthright. He didn't consider it as important. So that was already set up. But now they have to convince dad to give that blessing to Jacob. Isaac, the father, now very old, at the point of death, and he's blind. How is he going to get that blessing switched? Jacob deceives his blind, dying father. 
disguising himself to be Esau, and lies to him, telling him he is Esau. And Isaac gives him that blessing. When Esau realizes that he's been deceived, he gets so angry that he vows he is going to kill his brother after his father passes. Jacob's mother, Rebekah, hears that and, of course, wants to protect her son. So she has a plan to send him away. Tells him to run away from home, to run 500 miles away to their relatives off in the distant city, and there he could settle down and continue his life. It's on that journey where we stop now and pick up this event. That may be familiar to you. It's referred to as Jacob's Ladder or Jacob's Stairway. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. You can see on the map where it is. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Now listen to this. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Wow. What a dream, huh? That stairway to heaven with angels on it. Now we'll take a look at that in a minute. But I want you to note what happened in that first sentence. He takes a stone and puts it under his head to go to sleep. Now how many times have you taken a rock and put it under your head to sleep? Doesn't this part of Scripture kind of strike you as being odd? Why would you use a rock for a pillow? Now the Bible doesn't tell us why. But it's interesting that it shares with us that particular detail. So there was something behind it. Now later on we're going to find out what he does with that rock, But why did he first take it to use it as a pillow? Unsure, but I think we can see what's really going on. He was stuck between a rock and a hard place. (laughs) We use that rock as a symbol of something hard and difficult. We might even say when things get really tough that, you know, we've hit rock bottom. Or maybe things are rocky in our lives. So let's take a look at what's going on in his life. And because he's Jacob, Israel, God's people, maybe we can identify some things that go on in our life too. Maybe it's start out by just asking this question. Am I living on a heap of trouble, like a big rock pile? The first thing we see that, that Jacob has to deal with is his own scheming and struggles. You know, God had promised that he would get that birthright. But Rebekah and Jacob must have been thinking they needed to do something to help bring about God's plan. Now, I don't know if they thought that, you know, God needed some help or if they just thought that they needed to act because, you know, things were just going too slow. Sometimes we think that way too, right? Things are just going too slow. Uh, Not quite sure how this promise of God is going to be kept, so we need to do something. Now, oftentimes, God does want us to do something. He doesn't want us to just sit on our hands and wait for it to all take place without us. But are we doing that something 
in faith. When do you get to the point where you do, as the saying goes, let go and let God? Well, God may want us to do some things, but he doesn't want us to sin. Jacob and Rebekah sinned. When they thought they needed to do something to carry out God's plan, they were sinning. They were deceiving and they were lying. God doesn't want us to sin. So if you ever wonder, does God want me to do something? If it's sinful, no. Then what does God want me to do? Simply look again at the directives that he gives in Scripture, see the directions that might be placed before you, and then go forward in faith. Rebecca and Jacob did not have faith in God's promise. So they created a lot of trouble for themselves. Trouble now that Jacob needed to run away. He needed to find a safe place. It's kind of natural, isn't it? We experience some difficulties. Nobody wants to go through difficulties, so we look for ways out. We look for ways to make it easier. And that's what Jacob was doing here. But before we run away, maybe we need to look at what is that difficulty. If we have caused the problem, if we have sinned against somebody, offended them, it's not a time to run away, it's a time to stay put and to straighten things out, to apologize, to confess your wrong to God and make things right. In running away, you have to ask yourself also, where am I running to? Are you running to some place, to some activity that's ungodly? Are you running to some place that is against God's clear will and directions? And that's not a place to go to get away. Are you running to some place that's simply void of God? It may not be sinful, but God isn't there. You know, Southwest has that advertisement, you know, want to get away. And sometimes we feel that way. We just want to get away. We want to change. And so maybe you have to ask yourself, too, how am I running? Am I running with faith in God? Or with a lot of doubt and uncertainty, rebelliousness in my heart, or maybe with some fear? I would have to think that that was in Jacob too, a lot of fear, fear of the future. Right now, he's cut off his past. He's left his family. He's going 500 miles away to a place we're not sure he's ever been before, to people he's maybe never met before. No doubt there was some fear. Fear that, you know, he had really made a mess of things, and really uncertain what was coming up. We can probably identify with that. And even when we go through things, there are people who have been through similar things and they come out okay, we still have that fear. Think of what he was going through. And he was probably doing it all alone. There's no evidence that anybody else was with him. Now oftentimes when the people were traveling in the Old Testament, it would say there was the family or the servants or somebody else was with them, but there's no indication that there is anybody there. In fact, he's, he's camping out in the wilderness when there was a city nearby. Why didn't he even go into that city? He felt separated. He felt all alone. So do you see the rock in the hard place? <laughs> you see the pile, the rock pile of troubles that he's living on? And when you look at that, maybe you can see some things about yourself as well. Maybe there are some schemes and struggles that you are going through, and it, 
it seems like you're living in just a lot of rocks. And maybe you're kind of looking for a place to get away from it. You want to change, thinking it'll be better then. Maybe you're looking for some kind of safety just in some other activity. And with that, maybe there's some fear. Fear about what's my life going to be like now. And maybe you feel all alone, cut off from friends or family, going through something nobody else has been through. Are you living in a difficult place? Well, that's the rock. But remember, something else happened in that verse. He had a dream. A dream of that stairway filled with angels. And doesn't this tell you something? Isn't it interesting how God loves to intervene when we're on rock, on, at rock bottom? When our life seems empty. We have nothing left inside of us. Nobody else to go to. Nothing to grab or to hold on. And yet God is there. That stairway from heaven coming down to earth is just a picture of something else. Something to give us hope and stability in our lives. And what do we see on that staircase? Angels. Going up and down it. Oh, we're infatuated with angels, right? We love angels. Angels are interesting. We want angels on our Christmas trees. People have angels as decorations. TV shows about angels. Uh, the reality is probably very few people have seen an actual angel as they're described in the scripture. Yet the Bible says they are all around us. They are God's ministering spirits, it says. God has sent them down to serve us. Uh, they guide us, they protect us, they provide for us. They may help us with messages from God. All sorts of things the scriptures descri describe. People are infatuated with angels. But let's remember two things about them. They are servants of God. Servants. They are just created beings like us. Well, they're not exactly like us. They're a little more powerful, a little bit faster, smarter, and holy. But they are still created beings of God. They serve us as they're serving God. So while angels are interesting, and Billy Graham calls them God's secret agents, let's not become too focused on them, but rather focused on their master, the one who sends them. And that's exactly what this account goes on to tell us. There's that beautiful picture of those angels, but look up on the top. Who's on top? The scriptures tell us. Now there's one word missing here, from the Hebrew that we just don't like to use in modern English. Behold. <laughs> Behold, there above it stood the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord. So our attention should be focused not so much on the staircase or the angels, but on the one who's on the top, the Lord. Now you recognize that his word is all in capitalized letter, and that isn't really for emphasis. It's to reflect that this was the special name that God gave himself, that reflected he is a faithful God of grace. That was his covenant name, his promise name to the people. And that's how he introduces himself 
to Jacob when he's on rock bottom. I'm the Lord. What he does next is deliver to Jacob a series of seven promises. And we're going to take a quick look at them. Uh, The fine details and fulfillment of them may not apply to us, but they reveal to us the nature of God and his promises to us. So rather than looking at our life and thinking, I'm living on a heap of troubles, we can assure ourselves that we're living on a pile of promises. Let's take a look at what those promises are. The first one was that of forgiveness. He had that assurance from just the fact he said, I am the Lord. Later on, the Lord would describe and define himself based on that name and say, I am a loving and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, and forgiving your wickedness, rebellion, and sin. As Jacob is reflecting on his life and how messed up he made it, he has assurance from God that he's forgiven. And that's true for us too. When we see how maybe we have messed up our lives, done things that are wrong, the Lord doesn't abandon us. Isn't it interesting at this point in his life, the Lord comes and he doesn't rub Jacob's uh, face in his wrongs. He isn't shaking his finger at him and rebuking him. He's coming to reassure him, I am the Lord. Now he goes on, here's promise number two. I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. Now Abraham's actually his grandfather, and Isaac his father, but Hebrew would speak of it just in those terms. What God was promising and reminding him of was simply his faithfulness. Jacob, I know you messed up, but I'm still your God. Abraham messed up, your father Isaac messed up, and you messed up, but I am the God for all of you, always. God is always faithful to us. He goes on, this third promise. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Now, right now, this family of Isaac is pretty small. And God had given them the promise that they would have this land, and God reassures it now. He's promising him a future. Jacob probably thinks, boy, I have really messed things up. What is my future going to be like? And God is saying, don't worry. You may not know what things are going to turn out to be like, but I do. I have a plan for you, and it's to bless you. You're in my hand because you're in my heart. God promises us a future of hope and blessings. The next promise. He says, your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and the east, to the north and to the south. Here's Jacob. He's a single guy, just estranged from his family, and now going up to some relatives. He's wondering, yes, about the future, but also, who's going to be with me? And God assures him of the blessing of family. God here is reminding us how he blesses us by putting other people in our lives, our family. That's one way God blesses us. Then he says, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Wow. All people on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. 
This is a promise that was made throughout the scriptures to God's people. It was a promise of the Savior. That's how God would bless all people, by sending the Savior to save all people from their sin. And it would come through Jacob's line. Sixth promise. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. He's giving him the promise of his presence. This is the first time God made that promise to one of the people in the Bible, that I'm with you. But it wouldn't be the last time. God would repeat it again to Moses, to Joshua, to many others, even to us. In sending his son into this world, he called him Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus reassures his disciples, I am with you always to the very end of the age. So when we are uncertain about the future, about how things are going around us right now, we have the certainty God is with us. And then there's one more promise. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. It's a promise to keep the promises. It's a promise of the fulfillment that God will bring. All the promises that God has given us, he says he will keep. Wow, what a list of precious promises. And look at who he's giving those promises to. Jacob, the deceiver, the scoundrel, the liar, the man who thought he needed to help God. You see, God gives us those promises not because of who we are, not because we've shown ourselves to be worthy of them, but because of who he is. That staircase simply represents the promises as they come from heaven to touch us. God speaks them and God delivers them to us. Now, how do we know that they will be carried out? Let's take a little closer look at that staircase. And you notice here that picture? It's a staircase of stones. You know, sometimes we talk about Jacob's ladder, and maybe we think of those nice, shiny aluminum ladders we get from Home Depot. They didn't have those. Or we think of, it was a staircase, and we think of some royal palace staircase. They didn't have that. Maybe this is what their staircases look like. So maybe we see something behind that stone again. In fact, Jesus talks about that staircase, and he tells us what it pictures. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That staircase, that avenue by which God gives us his promises and his blessings, is Jesus, who is our rock of refuge. It's because of Jesus that we have the certainty of those promises. The one who is the Son of God, who is our Good Shepherd, who is the Advocate for us, who is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the Lamb of God, the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other. The certainty of us having the promises of God is because of Jesus. The Apostle Paul said, There's one God, 
and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Because Jesus came to earth to be with us and live for us perfectly under God's law, we have a righteousness so that we can stand before God unashamed. Because Jesus came and laid down his life as the sacrifice for sins, taking our guilt upon himself so that it's removed from us, we are now brought back to God, no longer separated because of our sins. Because of the certainty of Jesus' resurrection, we have the certainty of our resurrection and eternal life. Jesus is the basis for the promises and the certainty that we will have them. He is the rock of our refuge. How this event changed Jacob's life. Take a look at what happened now. When Jacob spoke, awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, which means house of God, though the city there used to be called Luz. And then Jacob made a vow, saying, If, and it's better translated since, since God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking, and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear, so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Look at how the promises of God change our life. Not to live with fear and doubts, but rather that we can live with confidence. Confidence of faith. Confidence that God gives us in those very promises. Jacob was certain that despite the fact he had really messed up his life, God was there to bless him. And that gave him confidence to go forward. And then you notice what he did. That stone that was a pillow becomes a pillar. That stone becomes a memorial a reminder, an encouragement for him and others to have faith, to have confidence in God's promises. When you leave here this morning, there'll be some tables set up at the side doors, and there are going to be some little rocks there. They've got a cross on them. Go ahead and pick one up. And take it and use it as your reminder to go to God in faith with all your needs. Put it on your desk. Put it in your kitchen, on your dresser, on your car. And just take your problems to the Lord and remind yourself of the promises that he gives you. And then make yourself a pillar. What did he do with that rock? He set it upright as a pillar, it says. Now, oftentimes in the Old Testament, they would set up rocks to be altars for sacrifices, but instead he sets this one up as a pillar. Why? Because it's pointing up to God. 
Then he pours oil on it, which was their way of consecrating something, setting it apart for God's purpose. And that was reflective not just of that rock, but of his life. Throughout the scriptures, then, people will talk about pouring out their life. The Apostle Paul would say, my life is being poured out as a drink offering in service to you. He was making a commitment with his life to serve the Lord in worship, in serving, in passing on what he knew about God to future generations. What do you have to set up as a memorial? Let it be your life. Pass on God to the next generation. Let's not send our children out simply into the world because God isn't there. He's here in his word. Let's pass on our word to our children, keeping them with the Lord who will stay with them. As I was preparing this message, it struck me just how often in Scripture the phrase is used the God of Jacob. Here's one of those verses written hundreds of years later from Psalm 46. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob, the one with those beautiful promises, is our refuge. Would you say that verse with me, please, right now? The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. And when you live with that, You're not on a heap of troubles. You're on a pile of promises. That's stability. Our God. Amen.